I am so thankful that the love and the grace of God have come into the world and into my life and I hope into your life as well. That's what we're thinking about these Sundays, the grace of God, especially in the life of a man called Jacob, one of the patriarchs from the book of Genesis. I want you to take a Bible and turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 28. While you're turning there, let me say happy Father's Day to all dads listening. Uh, my prayer for you is that the faith and the hope and the love of God would be yours in abundance as you fulfill your calling. I mean, God has called you to be a dad. May you fulfill that calling by the power of his spirit in faith, hope, and love. God be with you. Genesis 28. Now, this is the second story uh, from the life of Jacob that we're going to look at in this series. This particular story, the second half of the, the chapter, verses 10 and on, is often called Jacob's Ladder. And you'll see why in a moment. Let me give you the background. Uh, since uh, last week's text, Genesis 25, when Jacob was born, Jacob has now grown up. And he has connived to steal from his older twin brother Esau both the inheritance and the firstborn blessing. Esau is frantic. He has resolved to murder Jacob when the time is right. Clearly, these two are not best friends forever. So mom, Rebecca, who's overheard Esau's threat, she's cleverly engineered a way to protect her favorite son, Jacob, from Esau. She's gone to her husband, Isaac, and said, Isaac, let's send Jacob away to get a wife. And Isaac agrees. In a mix of, of anger and a little bit of faith, Isaac blesses Jacob and sends him off alone on a journey, oh, of uh, four, five hundred miles. We're a couple days into the trip, and something entirely unexpected happens. Genesis 28, verses 10 through 22. Jacob left Beersheba, their home, and he went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place, and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head, and he lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached up to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall, you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Where then Jacob awoke from his sleep, and he said, 
surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And he was afraid. And he said, how awesome, how dreadful is this place. This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar and he poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. And then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. This is God's word. Ernest Hemingway was arguably the greatest writer of the 20th century. Certainly in the United States, he was the most influential writer. And Hemingway, even though he grew up in a Christian home, he was decidedly not a Christian. He grew up out in Chicagoland. His parents had gone to Wheaton College, the flagship of gospel-centered Christ-preaching schools in the United States back then and today. But from the very places where uh, he, uh, he, Ernest Hemingway, sh- should have experienced grace, young Ernest experienced ungrace. Let me give you seven markers of ungrace. First of all, legalism, unnecessary rules and burdens. Second, pettiness, unnecessary quibbles and fights. Third, refusal to forgive. Fourth, refusal to admit wrong and change. Fifth, demandingness, you got to do it my way. Sixth, fortress thinking. In other words, a lack of welcome to the outsider or to the needy. And seventh, indifference. Unwillingness to show empathy to those whose experiences are outside your own. Hemingway experienced ungrace. Let me give you just one example of many. One time his mother, when Hemingway had grown, she wrote a letter to him in which she explained that a mother's life is like a bank account. Every child born enters the world with a large and a a a prosperous bank account, seemingly inexhaustible. And in the early years, the child withdraws heavily, no deposits made. That's why, she said, in the later years, Ernest, you need to replenish your account. You need to make deposits that keep you in good standing with me. You need to send flowers. You need to send fruit. You need to send candy. You need to pay my bills without my knowing it. And above all, Ernest, you need to stop neglecting your duties to your Savior, Jesus Christ. Hemingway could not hear that last appeal, important as the content was, because of all the clatter and noise of the graceless 
ungrace that he heard. It is a sad observation that Christians and the church are often guilty of ungrace. Legalism, pettiness, a refusal to forgive or to admit wrong, a demandingness. In this story, in this story, we see a person changed in an initial way through grace. We see in this story the essence of grace. Here in Jacob's, Jacob's timeline, here for the first time we know of, Jacob meets God the God of his father and mother, the God of his grandfather and his grandmother, the God of Isaac and Rebekah, the God of Abraham and Sarah. And when he meets God, divine grace crashes into Jacob's ungrace. We have there in the story the, the essence of grace, unconditional love in an unexpected place to an undeserving person. Let's look at those three. Let's start, first of all, with the unexpected place. Jacob at Luz. Jacob has been pushed out of the house by his father, and he's on a trip. Now, for Jacob to go on a trip, that in itself was probably a calamity. Because from all we can tell, Isaac, Rebekah, Esau, and Jacob have not moved all that much over the decades. They live in Beersheba, which is way down in the south and southern part of the promised land. And Jacob is heading north to, to Haran up in modern Syria. That's 400, 500 miles away. That'd be like uh, Princeton to Montreal on foot. A three-week journey. Jacob was alone. He was penniless. Maybe mom had packed him a bag lunch, but this is now probably the third day out, and that was undoubtedly gone. No food, no water, no supply, as he would say later on in a prayer to God, chapter 32, verse 10, all I had was a walking stick. And to make matters worse, Jacob had previously in his life stayed in the tent Genesis 25. In other words, he wasn't an outdoorsy type. He was, he was around the home fires all the time, okay? Esau was the outdoorsy type. Esau was the mountain man. Jacob was the quiet reader. And to further complicate the situation and to state the obvious, Jacob on his journey has no GPS. He has no rest areas. He has no road signs. He has no cracker barrels. He has no McDonald's. <laughs> and so he comes, verse 11, to a certain place. It's identified later on in verse 19 as Luz. It's about 50, 60 miles away from home. It's in the middle of nowhere. Nothing around, desolate wilderness. And in this unexpected place, God comes to him in an unforgettable dream, verses 12 and 13, that's so vivid in the text here because of the repeated use of the word behold. Behold a ladder. Behold angels. Behold God. First of all, the ladder. 
It was actually not a ladder. I'm, I'm going to continue to call it a ladder because it's so well known that way. But it was not a ladder. And I say that because, I mean, in, in a ladder, there can only be one person going up or down on the ladder. And in the second half of verse 12, we read that there were multiple angels going up and coming down at the same time. This is not a ladder. It's a staircase. It's a ramp. Probably it looked like an ancient ziggurat with stepped sides that led up to what they would call the the gate of heaven. And notice in verse 17 that Jacob calls the place the gate of heaven. He's speaking as someone true to his time. The ladder and the angels are God's way of saying to Jacob, where you are right now, Jacob, you may feel away from home, you may feel desolate and abandoned, but I am there. I'm busy taking care of you. Angels coming up the ladder with your needs. Angels coming down the ladder with my provision. Busy all the time. You know, for every Christian, there are never any God-forsaken places. None. I am here to say that to any and all listening to me, who trust and follow Jesus. Whatever seemingly God-forsaken place you or a loved one are in right now only seems God-forsaken. In your laws, in your certain place, there's a ladder going right up to God who's watching and caring, busy all the time. And it really doesn't matter how you got to the place you're in. The ladder's there. Kent Hughes, pastor and writer, writes this. We are all Jacobs. We are all people who often find ourselves in flight because of our sins. We are people who then imagine that God is not with us because of our sins. But the reality is that there is a ladder that extends between heaven and earth for us. And God finds us in our solitary desolations and he ministers to us. Grace in the unexpected places. Let's look secondly at the undeserving person. Jacob, the heel grabber. Remember how he came out of the womb? Those of you who listened in last Sunday, he came out grabbing the heel of his older twin as if pulling him back to say, no, 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 I'm going to be first. Jacob is the patron saint for high performers, New Jersey type A's, Princeton types who have to always be on top, always get ahead. Everyone is a Jacob in this area in a, in, in a unique way. Undeservingly, God comes to Jacob. And in response, Jacob has faith, an initial faith. When he realized, verse 16, that God was in the place, in this place, then he did the things that were were right for faith at that time. Uh, Verse 17 actually true for all times, he he experiences a deep fear, reverence, and an awe of God. 
But then verse 18, he sets up a commemorative pillar. Verse 18, he consecrates it with oil. Verse 19, he renames the place, formerly called Luz, now called Bethel, house of God. He makes a vow, verse 20. Verse 22, he promises to tie. It is clear that Jacob has had a life-changing encounter with God's grace. And faith has been formed. But that faith has a long way to go. You know, there was a story told among the ancient Greeks of how their, their goddess Athena was born out of the side of Zeus's head. She kind of popped out of his head, fully grown, fully armored. Faith does not jump out of God's grace, fully grown. It needs to grow. Jacob's faith needs to grow. He does not yet grasp. The heart of grace, God's unconditional love. And, and I say that because of his vow. Look at his vow in verse 20. It is an if-then vow. If the Lord will do such and so, if the Lord will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, and etc., then, down at the end of verse 21, then he shall be my God. If God does this, then I will trust him. Jacob has an if faith. If God does such and such, then I will really trust him. Now, an if faith is not that uncommon. In fact, I think just about all of us have at, at some point in our hearts in relation to something have some sort of if faith there. If faith is a, is a stop along the way to a mature faith. A mature faith is a though faith. Though God does such and such, or though God does not do such and such, I will still trust him. If Jacob had an if faith, Job had a though faith. Job 13, 15, Though God slay me, yet I will trust him. If Jacob had an if faith, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had a, a though faith. Father, take this cup, the cross, from me, though not what I want, but what you want. And it is God's unconditional love, his grace, settling into Jacob's heart, settling into our hearts, that pushes us on from an if to a though faith. We'll see more of that in the weeks ahead. Let's conclude, though, thirdly, with God and his unconditional love, the God of promise. In this text, God makes a series of promises to Jacob. Before I go there, in the New Testament, Jesus takes this very same scene and he makes it about himself. John 1, verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Jesus, in other words, is the latter. Because of him, your needs go up and God's love and grace come down. Because of his death and resurrection, Jesus is right there with you now. He's the latter. 
And you may feel that you've gotten yourself into a God-forsaken place. You may feel that there's no human help from miles around. But because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there are no God-forsaken places. There are no people beyond his reach. Even if you think you deserve it, even if you have deserved it, God's grace, undeservedly, his unconditional love is there for you. So let me close with four promises here in Genesis 28 that become ours because Jesus is our staircase. You know, initially God promises, he repeats to, to Jacob the promises that he made to Jacob's grandfather and father. That occurs in verses 13 and 14. And then in verse 15 he says some unique things to Jacob. That's where I want to focus. And I want to take four promises that he makes and I want to drive them home into our hearts. And I want to speak into everyone's situation, but particularly into three situations. First of all, I want to speak to those who, like Jacob, have seen and been around your mom's faith or your dad's faith or your friend's faith, but you've not yet made that faith your own. Secondly, I want to speak to those of you who are angry or despairing because of injustices in our country and who know that, it, that changes need to happen, but you want to do it out of a, out of a, out of a hole and a right and a, a, a faith-filled, gracious heart. And thirdly, I want to speak into those who are struggling with the continued weight and the continued losses of the pandemic. To those people and to all of you, I speak these four promises. First, verse 13, God says, I know who you are. You are not some faceless name to me. This is God speaking to Jacob right up front. I'm the Lord, the God of your father. I know all about you. I know who you are. Verse 15, I am with you. You have not been abandoned. Even here in Luz, it will one day be called Bethel. Verse 15, thirdly, I will care for you always. You need not unduly fear this journey ahead to Haran, to wherever. I will care for you. Verse 15, I will bring you back to the place where you belong. Changed. No longer with an if faith, but now like Christ, like Jacob, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, with a though faith. God's grace, unconditional love, in an unexpected place to an undeserving person. Oh, Father God, by your Spirit, plant in the hearts of everyone listening the unconditional love and the all-transforming grace that are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.